the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's Ask the Lawyer with Mike Connors. Got questions concerning elder or state law? Attorney Mike Connors has the answer. He was recognized as one of New York's top lawyers by New York Magazine and brings over 30 years' experience to the table. His office number is 718-238-6500. That's 718-238-6500. Here's Mike Connors. We are gathered here on hallowed ground. Horses raised, heads bowed down. We're gathered here on hallowed ground to sing this song away. Welcome to Ask the Lawyer with me, Mike Connors. For those who haven't heard the show before, hey, welcome. Our audience, I understand, is growing a little bit, bits by bit. And this show is in two parts. The first part of the show, we talk about estate planning and elder law. The second part of the show, we talk about nostalgia, history, politics, religion. Today, we're going to be talking a little bit about nostalgia and also about the Civil War. And we're going to be talking about an unusual subject, horses of the Civil War, with our good friend, Pat Fauci. In the meanwhile, the the attorney we have on the show this week is Nicole Donnelly. Nicole, welcome to Connor's Corner. Thank you, thank you. Always a pleasure to be here. Okay, now you've combed our email questions or whatever, and so what? What's the point? What's the question? The big question of the week is, Mister Connors, I have an irrevocable trust. How do I break it? Well, you know, it, it depends, of course, when the trust was written and who wrote the trust. But ordinarily. Uh, it's not that hard to change an irrevocable trust in New York, uh, you know, under current law. So basically, the different ways to change it, in a lot of trusts, people retain what we call a power of appointment to change the beneficiaries of the trust, and also, in some cases, to change the trustees. And you might say, well, what's irrevocable about an irrevocable trust? And the answer is very little. You can change an irrevocable trust in New York. Now, if your trust was done years ago, Medicaid took a separate position, you know, years and years ago, a power of appointment, they said that was too much control. And if you wanted to protect assets from nursing home bills, you couldn't have a power of appointment in your trust. They were reversed by the one of the appellate courts in New York. And so right now we are able to put a power of appointment in our trust agreements. Now, what's a power of appointment? That means you're allowed to change the beneficiaries of the trust. So let's say you have three children your trust agreement says I leave everything in three equal shares to my three children. One of your children goes off the reservation. He commits a crime. He's in jail. Uh, he's on drugs or whatever. You want to change it. Well, we can change it. We come in and you leave it to the other two kids or maybe you leave it in trust for the child who's disabled or has problems, weaknesses. We can do that. Your son is your trustee. He gets married to somebody you can't stand and she's influencing him, and you, you want to get him out of the trust as the trustee, we can change that with the trust that we've been doing for about the last 15 years. Now, if we have an old trust 
we got to take a look at it and see what language gives us the you know the right to make changes, which a lot of times there are, even when you don't think there are. And even you know one thing in New York, no matter what, no matter how the trust is written, if everybody who's named directly into a trust signs a consent, a trust agreement can be changed. Even in the old days, let's say if you had three kids and for whatever reason, uh, one of the kids wins the lottery and we want to take that kid out, and you know good reason we want to take that kid out and leave it to the other two children, you know, we can do that. If all the children sign a consent, we can change an irrevocable trust. So don't ever think that an irrevocable trust can be changed because too many times when people come into the office, they say to me, well, I don't want an irrevocable trust and because I, I want to be able to change it. And some of the same people say that and say, why don't I do a deed with a life estate to my kids in my house? And that is really irrevocable. You do a deed on your house with a life estate to your three kids, one of your kids gets sued, a judgment can put against your house. One of those kids um, gets in a car accident, again, gets sued. One of the kids has a tax lien. One of the kids goes through bankruptcy. You may not be able to sell your house because with a life estate, and it's a technical term, but you're indefeasibly vesting the kids with that. You want to sell your house. Originally, you think, well, I'm not going to sell my house. You want to sell your house. I think most of you know for your personal residence, you get a $250,000 exclusion, $250,000 for husband, $250,000 for wife on selling you know, the, the real property that's your residence. Well, you put your kids on the deed through a life estate or otherwise. The kids don't live in the house. You've lost that exclusion in whole or part. So with the trust, you're able to change the beneficiaries ordinarily, and it's more beneficial for you tax-wise. And we don't know what's going to happen. I, I, I can't answer when somebody asks me a question, what's going to happen in Washington? Nobody knows what's going to happen. Right now, you can, you can tell for a couple of months nothing's going to happen because until they have budget reconciliation, they're not going to get you know, Republicans to vote for tax increases. Now, we have to see what happens in November when we have budget reconciliation, and then we'll, you know, we'll have to try to figure it out from there. But even though there's some hope, there's some moderate Democrats who may not go along with the, the tax increases. But right now, if your house is in a trust and you live in New York State, $6 million of the house goes out tax-free to the kids. That's $6 million for husbands, $6 million for wife. So in effect, we can get almost $12 million out tax-free. But when, when you're sitting down and you say, what trust is good for me, revocable or irrevocable, Remember, an irrevocable trust can be changed with the laws that we have today in New York if you're choosing a trust to be done today. But you got to be careful. Sometimes you have these trusts drawn up by, um, you know, computer-generated forms or whatever, and sometimes they can be very, very dangerous. Nicole, what have you seen? I've seen a couple of horror stories where the poor people just had a falling out with the trustee and they just didn't have the power to change it. So we were writing letters, threatening court, you know, it becomes a big headache, something that I don't see any 85, 90 year old wanting to deal with years after making the trust. It's very unfortunate. Yeah. And, and that's the problem. You know, like a, a trust is not something, don't print out a trust form on the internet and just sign it and go ahead from there. You could be you know, let's say you have a house. No matter where you live, who you are, your house is probably one of your most important assets. Um, you know, whether you got a six, seven hundred thousand dollar house in some parts of Queens, whether you have a two, three million dollar house in some parts of Brooklyn, in either case, it's probably going to be one of your most important assets. And you don't want to have it tied up 
needlessly, uselessly. You don't want to be in a position where it's going to cost you taxes to sell it. And sometimes, you know, like uh, you, you do an irrevocable trust and you can't change it and you got a problem. And not only that, tax-wise, you have to have enough control of the trust for it to go out tax-free. If you make a straight gift, in other words, a trust where you can't change it, well, then you have to file a gift tax return, and that can have negative consequences to your children in the long run. So, you know, you you got to do it right. You don't want to have, you know, I don't care if you, let's say you got a $500,000 house, and it's not in the best shape in the world, and it's still worth $500,000. You want to get it done in such a way that it's right. And if you want to come in to Connors and Sullivan, you can give us a call at 718-238-6500. Now, we're going to be doing seminars at the end of, you know, October, which is really not that far away. And we're, we're doing seminars in Manhattan, Brooklyn, Queens, and Staten Island. We haven't done a seminar in a long time. Nicole, you, you live in Staten Island. I love it, despite what Mr. Connors thinks. You well, know. I'm not the biggest fan of Staten Island. What can I say? I really can't tell why. I still haven't gotten it out of him. Stay tuned for the answer in the future, because though. I hate paying the toll on the Verrazano Bridge. That toll doesn't apply to us residents as much as it does to you Brooklynites. What do you have to pay on a toll, your Staten Island resident, to come over to Brooklyn? I'm sorry to say that my Easy Pass takes care of that, and I don't actually look at it. <laughs> so you don't pay for it at all? No. All right. <laughs> I think you should... Have better stewardship of your economic losses there going over the bridge. If I paid attention, I wouldn't be able to come to Brooklyn. <laughs> Who can afford to pay attention? <laughs> and Nicole, also, I mean, you're, I think right now you're the only attorney who speaks Spanish fluently in our office, right? I know some guys have, you know, mix, can say a few words and understand a few things. Yes, I am the only Spanish-speaking attorney right now. And honestly, you know, we can use some more, but for now I'm covering it. The Spanish community definitely benefits from having it. And I know sometimes it's hard to translate certain words like trust or whatever from English into Spanish. So what do you do to do that? So I Googled the word trust because it was a very well-used word when I started and it's not an easy word to say in Spanish it actually has a lot of you know funny nuances it's called con fe di comiso now imagine trying to say that fast while you're doing your spiel it doesn't work very well but I do get through it and how did you learn Spanish my mother actually taught me Spanish before she taught me English which drove my dad crazy because he didn't understand Spanish <laughs> So up until about three or four, we had private conversations. She figured I would learn English in school, and lo and behold, she was right. Thank goodness. All right. Well, <laughs> we, we're running up to the point where we need to take a break, and then we're going to be talking to our old friend, Pat Falsey, and he's talking about horses in the Civil War. Nicole, what do you know about horses from the Civil War? They were extremely important. You couldn't do anything without a horse in the Civil War. If you were horseless, you were pretty much in a bad position fighting. All right. Well, that's a good, succinct summary of why you needed a horse in the Civil War. We'll take a short break. We'll be right back in a couple of minutes. If you're a homeowner age 62 or older and are finding it hard to pay off debt, or how about enjoying your retirement years with less stress? A government-insured reverse mortgage may be the answer or might be the perfect solution for you and your family. 
Hi, this is Frank Melia, a certified mortgage planner. I've been a mortgage specialist for over 20 years, and I've helped countless homeowners all over the tri-state area tap into a little or a lot of their home equity so they can use it right now. This past October, the federal government made changes to the reverse mortgage loan program. Give me a call now so our office can show you how these changes affect how much money you receive and how the annual mortgage insurance costs have decreased. My job is to help you find the best solutions for your retirement goals. I do this by educating homeowners with straightforward information and answers. It's free to call and speak with me, Frank Melia, to determine if this FHA program might be able to help you and your loved ones now. Call and speak with me right now. I'll answer your questions and help you decide if a reverse mortgage is right for you and your family. Make the call now, 888-943-2646. Or try me on the internet at www.quanticbank.com backslash fmelia. Once again, call 888-943-2646, and you could be on your way to a stress-free retirement. Frank Melia, NMLS number 62591. All loans provided by Quantic Bank, NMLS number 403503. Do you have somewhere to sleep? Did you eat today? Are you making ends meet? For thousands of New Yorkers, the answer is no. For children and youth, adults, seniors, people struggling with addiction or mental illness, and for the isolated, Catholic Charities of Brooklyn and Queens is there. With 160 programs and more than 4,500 units of affordable housing, Catholic Charities is one of the largest multi-service charitable organizations in the nation. We help change lives and build communities. If you or someone you know needs assistance, call 718-722-6001 or visit CCB. Welcome to the Connor's Corner segment of Ask the Lawyer. Uh, Right now, we're very privileged to have the General A.P. Hill himself, also known as Pat Fauci, you know, many times mentioned by Ed Bars in in his speeches. But, Pat, welcome to Connor's Corner. Thank you, Michael. Thank you for asking me. Okay. Now, Pat, I understand you're going around a lot of different Civil War roundtables, and you're talking about horses and particularly horses of some famous generals why do you think that's interesting and oh it's interesting because when you think about during the civil war itself over a million horses and mules were killed during the civil war and when you think about the different armies such as the union army the confederate army i mean you needed horses not only for the officers and for the uh the branch of the cavalry but also the infantry, they needed the horses because who else is going to call, pull the, uh, the wagons, the hospital wagons, the supply wagons? The artillery needed horses to pull all the cannons. I mean, the horses were probably the most important aspect of, of the armies. And with the North, uh, the government supplied the horses. But if you're a Southerner, you supplied your own horse. So you're in the cavalry, and then you get your horse shot from under you. You have to go back home. I mean, if you're fighting in Virginia and you lose your horse, you've got to go down, say, if you're from Texas, you go to Texas, and hopefully you get your own horse there and bring it back. But uh, if you can't find another horse, well, a cavalryman ends up in the infantry, and uh, it's not exactly what they wanted. Well, let me, So let's say for the sake of argument, you're for Texas. You go back to Texas to get a horse. You can't get a horse in Virginia. Uh, no, because you got your family. You're most likely your family, and plus you know your horses. See, that was very important. Because uh, a lot of the officers, put it this way, had many horses. I mean, we understand that, you know, Robert E. Lee and Traveler. Traveler is probably the most famous war horse in uh, the Civil War, even American history. And uh, Traveler wasn't the only horse that generally had. 
I mean, he had Richmond, he had Ajax, he had Lucy Long, which was a gift of Jeb Stewart. And uh, but but the most famous four horse of uh, General Lee was actually Traveler. Now, what did he ride different horses in at different spots, or what? What was the reason he had those horses, and why would he ride one horse at one point and not another? Well, they became certain favorites, certain favorites horses, just as um, well General Grant. General Grant was probably the best horseman at West Point. Many people raved about him riding so fast and the control of his horses and everything, but he actually thought horse racing was a cruel sport. And yet during the Civil War, he had a whole stable of horses. I mean, he had Rondi, he had Fox, he had Kangaroo, he had, uh, believe it or not, he had a horse by the name of Jeff Davis. He had uh, Egypt, he had St. Louis, and he had his famous horse, Cincinnati. But uh, during the... uh, Shiloh campaign, the Battle of Shiloh, Grant rode Fox. During Vicksburg campaign, he rode Kangaroo. And uh, after the Vicksburg campaign, uh, some of his men went to the plantation and captured a horse of Joe Davis, President Davis's brother, and brought back this beautiful black horse to Grant. And so Grant acquired that horse, and he named it Jeff Davis after the Confederate president. <laughs> well, Grant yeah, did have yeah. a sense of humor. Oh, um, he absolutely did. And the thing about horses is horses could have changed the whole course of history when you think of it. Because getting back to Grant, uh, on September the 4th, 1863, he was down in New Orleans, and General Nathaniel Banks had this big party celebrating you know, Grant's victory at Vicksburg. And, of course, you know everybody's at partying and they're having a good time. And, of course, wine was flowing, and Grant and wine and liquor did not exactly mix together. And so Grant might have had a sip of wine. Who knows? But then uh, Nathaniel Banks, who knew Grant was a great horseman, offered a horse to Grant, a big beautiful bay stallion and asked him why don't you go take a ride on this horse and so grant gets on the horse and he's really going so fast he's going through new orleans up and down the streets and everything and he's really at a breakneck speed and then all of a sudden a whistle blows from the train and this horse rears up and goes down and falls right on top of grant eyewitnesses said they thought grant was dead luckily grant recovered from that fall and um, later on, uh, a man by the name of S.S. Grant offered him a horse, which became known as Cincinnati. But just imagine what would have happened if Grant actually was killed on that September 4th, 1863. I mean, it's, it's amazing. Same thing would have happened with uh, different incidences in the war. General Lee. General Lee also almost lost his life. Matter of fact, there's an A.P. Hill and General Lee connection dealing during the uh, Battle of Fraser's Farm. This is right outside of Richmond. And uh, George McClellan, A.P. Hill's old roommate from West Point, was commanding the federal forces. And he basically was at the gates of Richmond during the Seven Days Campaign. And Richmond, of course, was the capital of the Confederacy. And the whole deal was like they, they truly believed that if Richmond fell, Virginia would fall. If Virginia would fall, the Confederacy would fall. And so at one point on... Um, the Battle of Fraser's Farm, on June 30th, Lee, riding Traveler, and President Jefferson Davis, riding his horse, Thunder, were out on the field. And artillery was going off, and who just happens to spot them was A.P. Hill. 
and he's riding his horse, Prince. And he rides up to them and basically tells them that, you know, there's no place for you on this field. Get out of here. I'm commanding this area. And please go to the rear. Go to the rear. And uh, they do. But then sometime later, they return again. And again, A.B. Hill has to ride out and basically orders them, basically tell them, just imagine if an artillery shell came and killed the president of the Confederate States of America and also killed the commander of the Army of Northern Virginia. Just think what might have happened then, in 1862. The Union losing Grant in 1863, maybe the Confederacy would have gone down. Who knows? Who knows what might have happened? But horses could have changed the course of history. Now, we've been talking mostly about Grant and Lee. Did any Mm -hmm. of Grant's mounts ever die in battle or Lee's? Well, what he did was one of his favorite horses was Jack. He loved Jack. Jack was always uh, a first or second choice. This is early in the war. And then after the Battle of Chattanooga, he basically gave Jack to the Sanitary Commission to be raffled off. And so this horse brought in uh, $4,000. So he had a good heart when it came to animals. He had a very good heart. But uh, none of the horses that Grant had ridden really died in in the war itself. But I tell you, do you know who was a curse to horses? Joshua Chamberlain. Everybody remembers Chamberlain, particularly, you know, what he did at Little Round Top. And, of course, if you've seen the movie Gettysburg, which I hope most people have, Jeff Daniels did a magnificent job. But you hardly ever see Chamberlain on a horse. He's walking with the horse because early in the war, he was not very good at horses. Matter of fact, um, on September the uh, 20th at the Battle of Shepherdstown, this is during the Antietam campaign, uh, Major Charles Gilmore lent Chamberlain a horse in the course of that battle, the horse was shot in the head. Well, sometime later during the Battle of Chancellorsville on May the 4th, 1863, Chamberlain is riding his horse by the name of Prince. And uh, it's a beautiful white horse, but during the course of the battle, that horse gets shot in the head. And so you would imagine that um, all the horses that are around the area are thinking, please don't let this guy ride me. Please don't <laughs> let this guy ride me. And Chamberlain always said that he felt he was a curse to horses. And then, then he finally found his horse by the name of Charlemagne. And they went through so much um, during the late part of the war. But also, you know, maybe it was good luck, maybe it was bad luck, who knows. But the day before... Lee surrendered at Appomattox. Chamberlain was riding Charlemagne going over the, uh, the Buffalo River, and the river was raging, and all of a sudden uh, Charlemagne slips on some rocks, and both Chamberlain and Charlemagne go headfirst into the river. And Chamberlain gets out, but Charlemagne had to take three soldiers, three big Yankee soldiers, to take uh, Charlemagne out from uh, the raging river. But like I said, you know, the, the fate of different horses could have cause um you know different incidents to change during the, the war and now, the dirt and battle at gettysburg itself i mean when you think of it five thousand horses were killed during the battle of gettysburg and then that's that's terrible you know when you think about something like that and well over a million plus horses and mules were killed you know in the war and the deal about gettysburg you talk about the five thousand horses now throughout the three-day battle a lot of horses, yes, were killed outright, but uh, a lot of them were wounded, mortally wounded. And so a lot of the soldiers had to go out on patrols to find a lot of these horses and unfortunately had to kill them. 
and so some horses could not be dragged to be put into um, a large, you know, bonfire, so to speak, because they would burn all these horses, and the stench would be terrible, and it would go on for miles and miles and miles. But some horses were probably thrown into a ditch or something along that line. I mean, it was just horrible. That was a, a horse was most probably was the most important item uh, to the soldiers when you think of it. At that time, was there any veterinary medicine for the for these horses? I know, I know there were some vets, but was there? Well, they tried to do as much as they possibly could, but don't forget, an army is always on the move. And, you know, Charlemagne was wounded several times during the war, um, you know, for Chamberlain's horse. I mean, several times he got shot in the neck, got, you know, got mini balls and, you know, so forth and so on. But uh, Charlemagne, you know, survived. But some horses uh, did not. I mean, at one point during the Battle of Spotsylvania, Lee was leading uh, Mississippi troops. He was... He, Lee should not have been out where he was, but he was leading, you know, Mississippi troops. And then artillery was going on, and it seems like at one point Traveler reared up, and artillery shell went right underneath him. And and Lee and then Traveler could have been killed outright right then and there. What was the most, in your research, what was the most memorable horse casualty during the war? Well, I would say uh, during the Battle of Gettysburg uh, at the Trossel Farm, that's where Sickles was wounded. Uh, it was an artillery battery there, and they had uh, 88 horses there, and uh, 60 were killed. In that one section, 60 horses were killed out of the 88 that were there with the, with the uh, artillery. So it, it was just it was horrible. And you think that these horses had to be trained to withstand you know, the loud noise, the smoke, or the commotion, bullets whizzing by, and um, people just don't think about that. It's funny, when we were uh, making the movie Gettysburg, back in 92, and the movie we know came out in 93, um, one, one of my nieces, uh, she saw the movie, and she was must have been about eight or nine years old, and the thing that bothered her more than anything else was seeing the dead horses after the battle. She didn't care about the men, you know, being shot or anything. <laughs> but the thing about it, she cared about the horses. And she goes, Uncle Pat, the, the horses really die? And I said, no, they're fake horses. <laughs> you know, it's a movie we're making. But a funny incident did happen on the set when we were making the movie Gettysburg. Uh, our head prop man, Kelly, he had to, you know, take care of everything. And, of course, if a horse was damaged during the filming, he had to repair it overnight or the next few days or what have you. So at one point, one of the horses that was um, beat up, so to speak, during the battle, you know, a fake horse that would be lying on the ground, he had to bring it back to his hotel room. And so he's working on it, and of course, you know, he gets up early to go to uh, grab a quick bite to eat, and lo and behold, the maid comes by, opens the door, and sees this dead horse on the bed. <laughs> she looks, and she puts her arms, goes, on, ah, and runs out. So she was screaming all the way out, but um, it was just crazy things that happened on a movie. And, of course, it had to do with a horse, a dead horse, which he thought was a real a real horse. Do you know how many uh, horses Nathan Bedford Forrest had shot from under him? Yeah, 29. Yeah, 29 he, he horses. Killed, he, he killed 30 men personally, and he mm -hmm. had uh, 29 horses shot from under him. Uh, George Armstrong Custer, I believe, had 13 horses killed from under him. And uh, there's a statue of George Armstrong Custer in Monroe, Michigan, depicting him at the Battle of Gettysburg on his horse, Roanoke. And it's called Sighting the Enemy. And so some of the horses, you know, really, you know, 
bonded so much with the uh, with the writer. I mean, if you go down to uh, Lexington to Washington and Lee University, the the Lee Chapel that Lee has his script there, and just outside the door, you have a marker there where Traveler is buried. So so Lee and Traveler bonded so much together that you know they're basically buried in, in the same area. So how long did Traveler live after the war? Do you know? Yes. Uh, well, Robert E. Lee died October the 12th, 1870, and Traveler died the next year. He, he stepped on a nail and developed tetanus, and he had to be put down. But some horses, you know, carried on, so to speak. I mean, George Armstrong Custer, I mean, we all know him from the Little Bighorn, and, you know, he died with his boots on. But uh, he loved horses, and he always knew a right horse when he saw him. So uh, there's one horse that he, he stole. He actually did steal a horse for himself. It happened after uh, the surrender at Appomattox, which was April the 9th. So on April the 25th, uh, General Sheridan gave orders to his men to, you know, confiscate all horses within the area around Richmond, Virginia, you know, good horses. And so members of the 3rd Cavalry Division, which Custer commanded, they were tipped off about a certain horse. And so... Uh, they found this horse, and so they delivered this horse to Custer, and not only did they deliver the horse, but they delivered the pedigree papers. So Custer noticed this horse. It was a fine-looking animal by the name of Don Juan, and uh, he changed the pedigree papers. He took Richard Gant's name off the papers and put his name on the papers, so he actually stole the horse. Now, how many, how many horses— Used in the war were thoroughbreds that had a pedigree. Well, uh, well, most of the generals had the pedigree horses and so forth. You know, like like uh, Jeb Stewart, he was a fine horseman. Uh, he had Maryland, he had uh, Virginia, he had General, he had High Fly. I mean, he had all these horses, and he knew good horse flesh. And a lot of these horses came from Kentucky. So you think about Nathan Bedford Forrest. I mean, the most famous horse Bedford rode was King Philip, and the thing about it, as I said, he had 30 horses killed from uh, 29 horses killed from under him, killed 30 men. He trained King Philip so that if anybody, this is even after the war, came near King Philip and it looked like they had a blue uniform on, <laughs> King Philip would get kind of spirited and kind of get rowdy, you know, maybe to charge them, something along that line. But uh, a lot of those thoroughbreds came from Tennessee and uh, the Kentucky area. But of course, Virginia was also horse country too. I mean, Traveler. Uh, which the original name was Jeff Davis, because Jefferson Davis was a war hero, and so the original owner, um, Richard Johnson, named him uh, Jeff Davis. He won the Virginia State uh, Fair three years in a row. Traveler was born in 1857, so 1858, 1859, and 1860. Uh, Jeff Davis won the Virginia uh, you know, tour show, you know, and then the horse was sold to a Captain Brown, and Captain Brown changed the horse to Greenbrier because Greenbrier was the area in Virginia where that horse was born. And that was a tradition back then if a horse was bought and sold to change the name. And so later on uh, during the um, campaign in western Virginia, Lee was riding his horse by the name of Richmond. And Richmond was having trouble because a lot of the roads were all muddied up and the rivers were flowing. And then he just couldn't handle it. Richmond, and so he actually saw 
Greenbrier, and so he tried Greenbrier, and it just fit. It just fit so well, and Lee even said that someday, you know, I should have this horse, and he kept calling it my colt. And so just by coincidence, several weeks later, Lee gets transferred to Charleston, South Carolina, and who happens to be there? Captain Brown and Greenbrier. And so what's Captain Brown going to do? He offers to give Greenbrier to General Lee. General Lee would have none of it. And so he actually pays $200 in Confederate money for Greenbrier, and he changed the name to Traveler, which was one of George Washington's horses. And the amazing thing about it, in 1864, Traveler was appraised for uh, $4,600. So who got the best of the deal? Now, well, when you say it was appraised, was was the price just really based on the fact that he was Robert of these Mount? I'm sure. I'm okay. sure. Plus, you know, it was just one horse that had gone through all of these battles, the Seven Days, uh, Second Manassas, uh, Antietam, Fredericksburg, Chancellorsville, you know, everything, you know, all the entire war, Gettysburg, and then uh, 1864 was appraised at that. So it, everybody knew it was General Lee's horse, and everybody knew of Traveler. I mean, that that's probably is, I still say today, the most famous war horse in American history. Who do you think was the f- most famous horse uh, from the Union generals or anybody? Oh, Cincinnati. Cincinnati? Absolutely, Cincinnati, which was uh, Grant's horse. And also there is Rosini. Uh, which was Sheridan's horse. Rosani, he was the one who uh, rode, basically, Sheridan rode that horse to uh, Cedar Creek, Battle of Cedar Creek. A, very, a famous poem was made about that. Matter yeah. of fact, if you go to the Smithsonian in Washington, the horse is on display. Actually, if I on, may, you know, interjection yeah. from the producer, but yes. um, the, the Sheridan's ride is actually Sheridan. one of the things I did for oratorical contests in middle school. So, and did you make it in time to win the battle? <laughs> if only, if only. You know, Pat, you may want to just tell the audience because, you know, we're we're doing a lot of talking here, and some people in the audience may have no idea what we're talking about. What was mm-hmm. Sheridan's ride? Can you set the scene on that? Well, yeah, this Battle of Cedar Creek was going on on October the, uh, the 19th, 1864, and Jubal Early was there, you know, whipping the uh, the Yankees. And so Sheridan is, is several miles away, 20-plus miles away, and he gets his telegraph saying that his men are being routed. And so he gets on his horse, Rosani, and then, and then he starts riding and riding and riding, and then he just has to get there in the nick of time, which he does get in the nick of time, and turns the course of the battle because the, the, the Yankees, they're in shambles. It was almost going to be the great skedaddle, but the leadership that Sheridan had – Basically, you know, turned the tide. Along with Sheridan was George Armstrong Custer at that battle, too. It's a very desperate battle. And just think of it, it was October 1864, and the election was coming up for Abraham Lincoln. So who knows what might have happened if, if the battle was lost. Maybe it would have swayed the election. We don't know. We really don't know. Well, I, I think that, you know, people forget sometimes that a war is just not fought in a vacuum. There are a lot of things that go around it. And if, if Early had one at Cedar Creek, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the, the early was just outside the gates of Washington that much earlier, you know, so. Absolutely. Battle of Monocacy. That's right. He right. came so close. He actually shelled Washington, D.C. I mean, it, it, it came so close. It really did. And like I said, horses contributed to a lot of these victories and or defeats the way you want to put it and everything. And the funny thing about Cincinnati, Grant loved Cincinnati so much he would not let anybody ride that horse, not at all. 
But towards the end of the war at City Point, Virginia, not too far from um, Appomattox, uh, Grant had a visitor, Abraham Lincoln. And so Abraham Lincoln was able to ride Cincinnati, the only person to ever ride Cincinnati. And Cincinnati lived uh, after the war, dying in 1878, and Grant died in 1885. So when Grant was in the White House, did he have any horses? Do you know? Uh, I'm sure he did. How else was he going to get around? <laughs> you think yeah. it, he probably was, you know, like Teddy Roosevelt, you know, take a spirited ride every so often. Well, he did get locked up for speeding at one point. <laughs> well, there you go. There you go. And one thing that I'm proud of that I do every year um, – I do work for the uh, National Riding Stables in Gettysburg. They use rescue horses. And so whenever we, you know, they find out a horse is going to be laid out the pasture or is going to be sold off to slaughterhouse or something along that line, uh, you know, they try to acquire the horse. So what I do every year, I go there and I do a program called Saddle Up with General Hill. And I talk about famous horses. I talk about the generals. I talk about, you know, movie horses, etc. And then I take people on the battlefield and give them a tour on horseback. So if any of your listeners out there want to help out the National Riding Stables, all they got to do is do uh, on the Internet, National Riding Stables at Yahoo.com, and find out about them. And speaking about movie horses, uh, I got some questions for your audience. Can I, can I throw this at them, Michael? Is this possible? Yeah, but I don't know who's going to answer them. <laughs> All right, here we go. I'll do an easy one first, all right? Roy Rogers' horse. Well, let's trigger. Okay. Dale Evans' horse. Don't remember. Buttermilk. Buttermilk. I was going to say yeah, Buttercup, but... Most people do say Buttercup. Now, yeah. here you go. One of your all-time favorites. I know you like this person. Hop along, Cassidy. <laughs> well, think about it, okay? All right. All right, we all know the Lone Ranger. Silver, I hope. Yeah. All right. And I know you know Jimmy Stewart's horse. Right. Well, that was one of the. If everybody, if anybody remembers the movie, um, what what was the name of the movie that up in Alaska with uh, and Canada with Walter Brennan or whatever the pie, whatever. Yeah, but pie. He, yeah, he has yeah. a scene where he walks a whole street with a bell on his saddle, and he walks right down the street one take. <laughs> didn't hesitate to do anything else. And that was Jimmy Stewart's horse for, I think, about 14 years. Se yeah, 17 westerns Jimmy Stewart yeah. made. Now, I'll tell you one thing. If there's a certain horse that has a resume, okay, I'm on that horse's resume. The name of the <laughs> horse is Guy, okay? Richard Gere rode Guy in Summersby. Cooper Huckleby, who played the scout or spy of General Longstreet, rode Guy in Gettysburg. I rode Guy in the movie Rough Riders, and Brian Mallon, who played General Hancock in the movie Gods and Generals, also rode Guy. So uh, I might be on a horse's resume. Who knows? Well, let me ask you something. Like, where do these horses sure. come that they use for movies and films? Oh, they're basically, you know, bred from different stables, basically out in California. A lot of movie horses have to be trained, basically, you know, what to do when the director says action, you know, and cut. I mean, they are basically trained for this because um, the thing about the movie horses is, as we well know, that in the early days they used this trip wire. 
And if there was ever like a stampede in a movie or something along that line and they wanted the horses to go over, they would have these wires and the horses would hit the wire, unfortunately, and then topple over and a lot of them would die from broken legs, etc. And there's one particular movie, The Charge of the Light Brigade, starring Errol Flynn, directed by Michael Curtis. He saw what was going on and it disgusted Errol Flynn. So he complained. He complained to the studios. So the influence of Errol Flynn brought about the end of using the tripwire in the movie business. Oh, here's a trivia question for you. You ready for dealing with Errol Flynn? In the movie The Adventures of Robin Hood, Maid Marian, the late, great Olivia de Havilland, rode a particular horse in that movie. Do you know which the horse it was? No. <laughs> Trigger. Trigger? Ooh, she, okay. She yeah, sometimes Trigger. you get amazed by... <laughs> exactly. But I was very fortunate to be in uh, that movie Rough Riders because uh, I was able to go to a special boot camp to learn how to be a soldier in 1898 with the Rough Riders. So uh, it, was, it, was, it was marvelous. I mean, we made the movie in 96. It came out in 97 on TNT. And I got to ride, actually, with Tom Berenger, Sam Elliott, Chris Noth, the great Buck Taylor, and uh, <laughs> Raleigh Wilson, who was a, a rodeo rider. But uh, that, that's something. And uh, one quick note. This year, I'm celebrating my 50th anniversary of the first time I was on a horse. It was back at Abilene Christian College. That's where I had gone to school. And it was April 3rd, 1971. They had a rodeo. I had never been on a horse before, but I entered myself in the bareback bronc riding event. Well, I made five seconds. Then the horse bucked me. But I'm so proud of that, of uh, saying I really rode in a real Texas rodeo. So this is my – and, and live to, to, to tell the story, so to speak. All right, let's let's go back. Just let's change the subject a little bit. Yeah. Sure. Civil War Roundtable. You know, like uh, some of the audiences, you know, they, especially some of the the, the newer people listen, have no mm -hmm. idea what the Civil War Roundtable is. Because, to be honest with you, in the last year, we haven't promoted as much just because of the, you know, the way things are. But what is the Civil War Roundtable? I know, you know, you were a past president of the Civil War Roundtable. What what is the idea behind it, and why should somebody Try it out sometime when we start having live meetings in a month or so. Well, this year happens to be the 70th anniversary of the Civil War Roundtable, the second oldest roundtable in the country. And it's basically people from all different walks of life who have an interest in American history, particularly the years uh, between 1861 to 1865. You have all these uh, colorful people, such as General Lee, General Grant, Abraham Lincoln, President Davis, you have different situations, uh, naval warfare. You have, you know, the infantry, cavalry, um, you know, artillery. You have economic. You have social. I mean, there's so many aspects during the Civil War, and uh, probably more books have been written about the Civil War than any other war in American history. And it really was the turning point in, in, in our history, our country's history. You got Northerners, Southerners, different aspects, different different ideas, what they believed in. It really did uh, change us what we are today. I mean, when you think of it, before the Civil War is, you know, they used to refer to the United States are, meaning different states. But then after the Civil War, the United States is. Because prior to the war, people thought of themselves coming from Virginia, coming from New York, coming from Pennsylvania, coming from Tennessee. This was their country. But then after the Civil War, we truly became one true country, the United States of America. So if you have any kind of an interest in that, 
and it truly, you know, molded us to what we are today. Now, here's the thing. You know, sometimes every yeah. once in a while, I mean, it, it may sound absurd to us who, who are regular mm-hmm. members, but people say, I don't know that much about the Civil War. Is somebody going to test me before I can join the club? Oh, no, no, not a test. It's, it's a social club, basically. And you just go to – you meet people, and you, and you you learn something, and, you know, just to, to, to meet new people and just gather around with a, a certain interest. We have a dinner meeting, and, uh, you know, it, it's we meet once a month. And so it's just something that, um, you know – you could learn. You could learn a lot. It'll be educational and it'll be fun. We also have a battlefield trip that we do every year. We'll go down to maybe a battlefield in Virginia or maybe go to Gettysburg, Pennsylvania, and Maryland. I mean, we do these trips and it's a social aspect, but also there's this area of, of learning something new. And I, I think all of us can say this no matter how much you think you know about the Civil War, there, it, it's like an ever expanding universe. There's always more you can learn. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. And not only that, um, you know, like I said, so many books have been written about the Civil War, so many movies, so many, you know, uh, poems, etc. There's so many statues around. I mean, right here in New York, you have Grant's tomb. Grant, probably one of the greatest generals of all time, is buried here in our own backyard. And so, you know, it's just something that uh, you actually could learn and, and have fun. Have fun learning, basically. And like I said, we've been around for 70 years when, when you think of it. And a lot of famous historians were, you know, were members. And, you know, it's a great institution. I, you know, we've had some knocks over the last couple of years with COVID, but hopefully we're going to mm-hmm. be on our way back, you know, in another month. Oh, absolutely. Month or so. I mean, we have a luscious history. I mean, uh, some of our founders was Bruce Catton, one of the great uh, writers of the Civil War. Uh, we were founded by, you know, U.S. Grant III, <laughs> Jeb Stewart III. I mean, there's a lot of history, and we have some of the best. Uh, historians come in. Even we have some actors come in. I mean, Stephen Lang had done uh, a few performances for us at the Civil War Roundtable. Stephen Lang, who portrayed General Pickett in the movie Gettysburg and General Stonewall Jackson in Gods and Generals. Uh, We've had uh, Sam Watterson come in to receive a special award for his presentation of uh, Lincoln, you know, some years ago. So um, Julie Harris for Mrs. Lincoln. I mean, you know, we have so much history in our club itself. So I, I welcome anybody who has a, 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 any kind of an interest in the Civil War or to meet new people and learn. You're more than welcome. All right. Well, Pat, you know, we'll we'll be talking to you soon. Uh, but the Civil War Roundtable, they can – what number would, would you call for information? You always call our office, but you have an alternate number there, right? Our special roundtable number? Yes. Okay. That number is? Seven one eight one nine eight one one. Can you say that again? I missed something. <laughs> okay. The number again is seven one eight three four one nine eight one one. All right. Well, Pat, you know, you talk about the Civil War. I learned a lot today because, to be honest with you, I know virtually nothing about the horses involved. Yeah, I heard about Cincinnati and. Uh, Traveler. Traveler, and that that's really about it. Charlemagne, I guess, just because that's such a cool name. Uh, yes. I remember yes. that. <laughs> but but really, I like, like for instance, would you know, like, what, what was General, General Hancock's horse or horses? General Hancock? Yeah. Uh, oh, at Gettysburg. Uh, yeah, when he's riding the line there? Yes. I'm trying to think. Um, 
it's slips me right now. Sorry about that. Okay, no, that's, you got I, me I on just that. Wanted... One, okay, I got you on Hopalong Cassidy. <laughs> you got I had me a on metal block on that. I haven't seen a Hopalong Cassidy in a while. <laughs> and I mean, no, people out in the audience are saying, "Who the hell are they talking about?" But <laughs> Pat, thank you for bringing up the nostalgia, and you know, we'll be seeing you soon. Okay, you take care. Thanks again for everything. Take All right, care Pat. Now. Thank you. Bye. Do you know how many Christians live in the Middle East? Six million people. Do you know how many Christians need your help? Every single one. Do you know what we can do? With St. Francis in Beirut, we can give them hope. We can give them medicines. We can give them medical equipment. We can give them everything they're looking for. Because some others decided to remove Christianity from the Middle East. But if we will help them every single day, not just to feed them or clothing, it's all about giving them another day with the idea that they are recognized, that we love them, they are cousins, sisters, there are roots. So, St. Francis in Beirut, it's all about helping Christians. And you can be part of that help too. If you want to help Father Paul in his mission, send your donations to St. Francis in Beirut, 213 Stanton Street, New York, New York, 10002. The Guild for Exceptional Children, or GEC, has been providing excellent care to children and adults with developmental disabilities since 1958. It is our mission to help build better lives and brighter futures for the people in our care. We serve nearly 1,000 individuals each day and are proud that 90 cents of every dollar is used for actual services. Please visit www.gecbklyn.org or call 718-833-6633 to learn more. Welcome back to Ask the Lawyer with me, Mike Connors, now accompanied by my wife, Beth. Hey, everybody. Now, Beth, I think we've been members of the Civil War Roundtable for about 25 years now. And we're going to start up doing live meetings again in, in next month in October. Hooray. Thank goodness. So where are we going to have our meetings? Back at 3 West Club. And um, everybody, now you have to, you're going to have to, the new rules, you have to show that you've been vaccinated. So that's going to be important. Don't forget that. Um, I'm looking forward to being able to see people and meet our speakers. So um, I've missed it. You know, I know it's been, we've been members for such a long time and things changed with the armory and we've been, you know, we've had to move, but um, it's going to be nice to be back at three West, comfortable, fun, good food. So, yeah, I am ready for it. Yeah, well, it's a, you know, it's a new year. Hopefully this Delta variant will start going away. I don't know what word to use, but, you know, hopefully it'll start drifting away or whatever. And, of course, that's had a big impact on the world Oh, today. yeah, good grief. I mean, this is just awful. And it doesn't matter where you live. I just please everybody. Be kind to each other. People have different ways of looking at things with the COVID. People have suffered in different ways. So stop being mean to everybody. Just go with it. It's COVID that's bad. All right. So we'll be back on the same stations next week, same times. Again, you were listening to Ask Delore with me, Mike Connors, now accompanying my wife, Beth. Have a safe week. Bye-bye.
sing this song away. We are gathered here on hallowed ground, voices raised, heads bowed down. We're gathered here on hallowed ground to sing this song away. We are gathered. We are gathered here on hallowed ground, voices raised, heads bowed down. We're gathered here on hallowed ground to sing this song away. Kevin McCullough, are you or your parents' assets protected from nursing home bills? Did you know these bills can exceed $15,000 a month? People work their entire lives to live comfortably in retirement, but when people become ill and need to go to a nursing home or receive home care, the bills can drain their assets, leaving many people bankrupt. The good news is that you can prevent that from happening if you plan in advance. Connors and Sullivan's lawyers can customize a plan that specifically protects your interests, including your home. Schedule a free comprehensive telephone consultation with Mike Connors to discuss your issues and concerns from the security of your home. Call today, 718-238-6500, 718-238-6500. Don't let nursing home bills take your life's savings and leave you and your loved ones bankrupt. Don't wait another minute. Mike Connors can take you through the process by telephone and start a plan designed for you today. That's 718-238-6500. 718-238-6500. The preceding pre-recorded program paid for by Connors & Sullivan Attorneys at Law, PLLC. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com. 